We're letting bootleggers out there in Radio Land roll your tapes. I want to Hello and welcome to episode number 72 of the Random Thoughts Podcast. That's R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com online. I am your host, Darren O'Neill. And on today's show, we're talking about bootlegs. You heard the boss before our little theme song there saying, bootleggers, roll your tapes. Well, many people over the years took them up on that offer. That particular quote was taken from a show at the Roxy in California back on July 7th, 1978, and it was broadcast on the radio, and as such, a lot of people recorded it, and then those were pressed into bootleg albums back at the time, but I got that from the official release of that show, something Springsteen didn't do for a long, long time, but finally jumped on this whole internet thing and has started releasing a bunch of shows, some classics, some newer, and they all sound pretty damn good. I mean, that was the one thing with the boss back in the day. He wouldn't release a live album, and his live shows were legendary. I really got into them when Born in the USA came out, so circa about 1984, right about the time I'm hitting high school, getting into the boss. And yeah, Born in the USA was a kind of a gateway drug, and it didn't stay my favorite album because it is a lot more pop sounding. And he had released better stuff, Springsteen. Darkness on the Edge of Town, I think, still remains my favorite Springsteen album. And that was the one that came out back in 1978. But I remember when Live 75 to 85 came out, Springsteen released it, three CDs. I'm sure it was released on vinyl and cassette at the same time, but I remember it was a big deal. Record stores were even open at midnight so you can come in and get your hands on the product because Bruce releasing live stuff was a big deal, which was why up until that point and for quite a bit of time afterwards, people were into the bootleg albums and trading the tape. So it's an interesting thing that it's come full circle for the boss that he's now releasing a lot of these old shows. And it's interesting because some of them, they thought were lost to the ages. It came down to a guy that used to work the soundboard. He used to throw a cassette in and record some of the shows and found it sitting in his basement or something, found this box of tapes and got it to Bruce. And this is where a lot of these shows are coming from. They weren't even aware that they were being recorded. And some of them, were being recorded using the massive technology at the time, which was basically a semi-truck that sat next to the venue and recorded everything in multi-track goodness as the uh, as the shows were going on. So there's some interesting stuff. You never know what's going to be found in the bootleg vaults, but I've been doing a show the No Agenda Rock and Roll pre-show, the two hours before the No Agenda show comes on, we go on to the No Agenda stream, and we're basically just getting the fans excited, 
giving them something to listen to before no agenda comes on and i wanted to do a music show our buddy mark von dyke was doing a music show for a while using creative commons music because playing music on the internet as a lot of you may know there are a lot of rules regulations and fees to be paid and all that but live music usually gets a bit more of a pass there are a lot of artists out there who have always been taper friendly i mean that really kind of started with the grateful dead where they even had sections at their shows for people to come in and set up their taping gear to get the best possible sound to make sure there were no annoying people around them because there's nothing worse than when you're taping a show and you have a screamer next to you i mean that kind of infringes upon your ear space and takes the quality of your recording and takes it down instead of making it more exciting and more high fidelity more you want to hear the band you don't want to hear the people next to you screaming so there are a lot of artists that allow fans to come in and tape some still don't but for the ones that do i mean warren zevon was a guy todd snyder one of my favorite folk singers up until more recently even allowed people to get in and plug into the soundboard so there's a lot of great stuff of his out there and that's the biggest difference too when it comes down to these bootlegging things and we'll talk about that a little bit that there are soundboard recordings which could either come from radio broadcasts obviously or if somebody brought a tape recorder back in the day or a digital recorder now and you go up to the guy running the soundboard and some of these artists are friendly for this some not so much or maybe you just find a soundboard guy who's willing to take a 50 and plug you directly into the board there's a reason there's a lot of these soundboard recordings that are floating around but when you're trying to play this stuff on the internet it's a little bit easier to go well you know okay if a guy allowed the taping like the grateful dead i don't think they're going to worry that you're playing their music on the rock and roll pre-show or warren zevon but overall the music industry has kind of changed a little bit and we'll be talking about that when it comes down to now streaming and all of the kind of stuff like that so really if you like live music do me a favor check out the no agenda rock and roll pre-show which starts at 9 a.m on thursday and sunday at noagendastream.com now how did i get into this well it's not it wasn't an easy thing to do because when i was getting into this there was no internet so it was a little bit harder to find people you had to find people who had the goods and at the time cds weren't really even a thing yet and if blank cds were around i'm sure they were a bit cost prohibitive so it was cassette tapes is where i started with the music trading and it came from my start a fanzine for the boss where else and there were a couple of them around one i think was called backstreets i think is still around one was called the river and they had little parts in the back where if people wanted to trade you would put your name and address and then if somebody wanted to trade with you or was interested in trading with you they would send you a snail mail and ask i mean again when you're just starting out i didn't have a lot of stuff i'd gone to a couple of record shows which they still do believe it or not went to a couple of record shows and found a few springsteen bootlegs on vinyl but overall i mean i wasn't a collector yet i was just trying to get started and found a lot of nice people that were willing to do this for blanks and postage which was really 
not an easy thing to do, especially since some of the best stuff for some reason was coming out of the UK back then. But that's what you had to do. You took your list once you got the shows that you had, and you would take the shows, you would take the dates, you know, list the venue, how many tapes, you would list, you know, a rating on there so people knew. And if you knew that you got the tape from the person that recorded it, then you could say, hey, this was first generation directly off the master. Or if you knew you got it from somebody who got it from the guy who recorded it, then you could be like, it's a second generation. And if you know anything about audio tape, unlike digital recording, if you make a, a copy of a copy of a copy, the quality starts going downhill. So every generation, a little bit of the fidelity was lost. So it was always good to get something as close to the master as possible. Now, with digital recording, you can make unlimited copies, make a copy for a friend, send it to somebody, and it doesn't matter. It's all the exact same, which is what kind of started with DAT and a few other formats that were digital. So the recording of the show has definitely changed. If somebody had a digital recorder and was able to make digital copies well, that was a big step up from somebody going in with a cheap Radio Shack, you know, little tape deck and bad quality tape without external microphones and all of that so that's i mean the trading worked by sending things in the snail mail going back and forth and hoping you got some good stuff and hoping people actually sent you the stuff back that was a big problem back in the day because you know these shows would take multiple tapes springsteen three hour shows you'd be sending a bunch of tapes back and forth and sometimes you sent the tapes and didn't get anything back there was really nothing you can do about it back in the day again this was a different world we were living in, but that's how I started collecting. That's how the trading worked. Now, the bootleggers, the guys that were actually recording this stuff, some of these guys became quite legendary and were well known throughout the bootlegging community because they were the guys that could go in and get an amazing audience tape, which wasn't always easy to do depending on the venue. But especially with Springsteen back in the born in the USA days, he was playing football stadiums. I remember when he was here in Chicago at Soldier Field. It's a it's a barn, man. Seventy thousand people, a not an easy thing to fill with quality sound from the front to the back. So guys that could go in and knew how to position the gear and where to stand to be away from the screamers to get the best possible audio became quite legendary in their own right but the gear was important one of the most interesting things to me is looking at because most of these bootlegs that you'll run across the taper has left behind some information about exactly what he used to tape it where from as far as where in the venue what kind of gear they want there to be a story behind these recordings and it does add a little bit to the fun when you see some of these recordings back from the 60s and 70s, and you're seeing that it was recorded with a reel-to-reel deck, it's an interesting thought process to go, how did this exactly happen? How do you get a reel-to-reel deck into a venue to record a band? And I mean, obviously, you have to have a friend that works at the venue in security. I'm sure things were a little bit more lax back in the day than they are now, but it certainly was never easy to take a reel-to-reel deck and set up microphones or get it hooked up to the soundboard or whatever you were doing. 
but it happened because there's a lot of tapes out there that prove this happened. I mean, sure, a lot of them don't sound really good. And as the technology has gotten better, the sound quality on the bootlegs has definitely improved. And that's a good thing. But I think the most recent changes have maybe been the worst because now we're just getting people bringing in their cell phones and taking a video or just recording the audio using the microphone in the cell phone. And I can tell you, don't waste your time. It doesn't sound good. I mean, if you really just want to listen to something that sounds that bad, then, you know, just put your head in a garbage can and play some really loud music outside of that. But it's interesting, too, the way bands have looked at bootlegs. They were against it, almost all bands for a while, because they were afraid it was going to impede their album sales. Well, I mean, now we're living in an era where nobody really buys albums. So maybe this is one of the reasons it's getting a little bit easier to tape some of these shows. But it may just be that the technology has gotten so much better because people are used to bring everybody's carrying electronic gear in now. Everybody's bringing in a cell phone, and there are microphones out there that you can hook up to things like your iPhone or your Android phone that will give you a much better recording. And the phones can actually be decent recording devices. And you know, a lot of phones you can put a uh, little memory card into it, a little SD card that can more than cover hours of audio so these devices have definitely made it easier for people to try to tape but you're still finding out that it's the people that know what they're doing that get the best possible results because you still can't take a little you know hundred dollar plug-in microphone or so and plug that into your cell phone and walk away with something that sounds like a professionally produced live album with that said there are some little mini microphones out there that run, you know, anywhere in the 500 to a thousand dollars a pair that people then mount on hats or on shirts or things like that to try to get the best possible sound and then run the cables down their back into the box that uh, the microphones go into because the microphones still have to be powered a little bit. So if you're listening to a bootleg that was actually recorded in the audience and it sounds good, you know, give that taper some credit because it's not an easy thing to do. Of course, with a lot of these radio shows, that Springsteen show back from the Roxy in 1978 was originally broadcast on the radio, which meant anybody with a receiver, obviously, could hook that up to a tape deck and record that. And as long as you were near the radio station, you didn't get any of that static, you didn't get any of that FM drift, you probably got yourself a pretty good copy. And the people that did that with reel-to-reel decks and recorded things, well, for me, you didn't need a reel-to-reel deck back in the 80s. You needed a hi-fi beta or hi-fi VHS machine and just record the audio. And you walked away with a much better quality sound than you could get using the normal cassette tapes. So that's how these things get recorded. People are still sneaking gear in and trying to find the exact right spot. And asking people, usually, that was one of the things a lot of these guys talked about back in the day was, Asking the people in their general area, you know, if they would shut the hell up or at least not scream, uh, you know, when the quiet portions or things like that to try to keep a little bit more of a controlled area around the recording device. And usually if they complied, well, then they would get a tape in the mail, you know, a few days after the show as their thanks for for not 
for not ruining the tape. Of course, now a lot of artists are doing this, including Springsteen, including Mark Knopfler, including Metallica. Ted Nugent did it for a little while. Todd Snyder did it for a little while where they were selling or giving you a recording or, you know, maybe a discount if you were at the show, but they were selling recordings of all the shows immediately after the shows were done. And to me, that makes more sense. It gives them an option. It gives them an opportunity to make a little bit of money. It gives the fans the option of whether or not they want to make a little extra purchase or have a memento of the exact show. And the nice thing about that is, although we know it doesn't stop people with their cell phones from being completely annoying, you know, if you could buy a copy of the show, there's really not a whole big reason to go in and try to tape it yourself. I mean, if the artist is taping it and they're like, hey, you won't, you'll get, you'd have a copy for like five bucks. Well, then you're probably not trying to bring your recording gear in and find the exact right spot and worry about the recording during the show. Instead, you can just go and enjoy the show. But you have to appreciate what these guys did over the years. And I thank everybody who's ever taken a tape deck or a recording device into a show and left behind something that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Sure, I mean, some of them sound great. Some of them sound horrible. But it's always interesting to hear bands along the way playing their songs or playing cover versions. That's one of the things I've always dug. And maybe it's because of starting out and being a big Springsteen fan was his shows were legendary because he would play for hours. And I don't know if there's ever been a normal Springsteen show where he wasn't playing a cover song of something uh, of another artist music, you know, something that uh, he's pulling from his childhood songs that he loved. And one of the things that I always dug about Springsteen was he was very well known to play stump the band with the E street band, who is still one of the best touring bands out there. Although we're missing a few key members now that Clarence and Danny Federici have passed away. But Springsteen back in the day wasn't opposed to seeing a sign asking for a song or somebody yelling out, you know, hey, play whatever, Freebird. I'm sure somebody did that every once, <laughs> once in a while to him. You know, people would yell out a song and he would just turn to the band and boom, he would just yell out the song title and there they would go and there they would do it. So it's interesting to me to hear people like Springsteen doing those old soul numbers. He used to do a whole Detroit Wheels medley, you know, the Mitch Ryder stuff, Jenny Take a Ride or CC Ryder, the, you know, James Brown he would cover. And Tom Petty was another guy who loved rock and roll and throughout his live career was always covering some interesting stuff. I mean, I remember there was one of my favorites is a version he did of Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash. And I think he even recorded on one of the live albums his version of the Otis Day in the Night song, Shout. So to me, that was always one of the draws to hear these guys doing stuff you normally wouldn't hear them do, to hear them take on songs that you've heard other people do and put their own spin on it. And every show was a little bit different. Springsteen and Todd Snyder, in their own ways, master storytellers who would tell some very funny, very interesting, amazing stories in between the songs. As Todd Snyder once said, and uh, had, a, had a fan site devoted to him called 18 Minutes because he made a comment that he ended up repeating over and over again as part of his spiel is that sometimes he goes along as far as 18 minutes in between the songs because he tells stories a lot. And those stories always change. So having a tape of those shows, being able to hear those shows 
brings those moments to you that you would have otherwise missed. Now, how has the internet changed things? Well, first and foremost, it's now allowed you another way to bootleg because there's a lot of artists that are going to live stream stuff when they have things to promote. And it's easy to record things off the internet and it's digital. So you're really not losing any quality, even though it's compressed if it's going over the internet. But hey, probably better to get a little bit of internet compression than to get something off of AM or FM if you have a bad signal. But the internet has changed things as far as the trading community because the trading community has really fallen by the wayside. Even when the internet first started, before we had the bandwidth, we were still doing the blanks and tapes and stuff like that. If you you had a list, you'd put it up, and if somebody wanted to make a trade, you would still do the trade through the snail mail because you didn't have enough bandwidth to just move the songs around. Now we do have the bandwidth to move massive amounts of audio back and forth in a short period of time. So that has really fallen away. The physical aspect of it has fallen away, which is good because I still have a lot of CDs that need to be ripped. I did all of my store-bought legitimate CDs years ago, and I've still been slowly getting into the bootleg CDs that I have in the CD format rather than just in flack on a hard drive because it takes a lot of work. So I'm kind of glad that the physical aspect of trading is gone. But now, because of that, there really is not a lot of trading anymore. What you have now are a few different sites that are torrent sites. And that's as close as you're going to get to the old time trading is that you post something on a torrent site. Somebody else sees it, they grab it, and the site tries to keep you having a ratio, which means you can't just take, take, take and never give anything back. But it really has killed the overall trading concept. And I think a lot of it, too, is that we now have a lot of people who don't want to own music or have never owned music, which is a weird thing to me, being an old dude, having vinyl, cassettes, CDs, and all of that. Having the physical material having the physical album has always been a thing that i've enjoyed especially the album art when it comes to lps but we have a society now we have a group of new kids coming into this who have never owned music the only thing they know is i go on youtube and i play something or i go on spotify and i just stream stuff and have never owned even a physical cd now which is weird but this is how it's starting to go so the trading of music has also be gone down that wayside because people just figure, well, I'll just stream what I want. And there's some stuff on YouTube. So that's fine. I'm more of a completist. And I think I've got a little bit of OCD when it comes to things like bootlegging, because like with Springsteen, you know, I, if I see a show that I don't have, I'll download it. I don't care how good the quality is or not. I just kind of want to put together. It's really maybe never started as my end goal, but it kind of became the end goal, which is like. Well, if I could just have every available recording of any Springsteen concert that's out there, that would be cool. And I just keep adding hard drive space and maybe I'll hit that goal at some point. But that part of the collecting is still fun going out and trying to find things. But it's harder to find real collectors. This is mainly now turning more into a wild west of people posting things and wanting you to download them. And maybe they get a buck or two because they got you to use the download service, whatever it is that they're using. There's a variety of them out there, but I miss the good old days of tape trading 
and really feeling like when you got something that was of a good quality it was that whole concept that you had something nobody else did and when your friends would come over you'd want to play hey you got to hear this you got to hear this copy of born to run man you've never heard anything quite like this and the internet has definitely changed that a little bit the streaming services have taken music from being a commodity uh, that people wanted to take ownership of that people had collections of and now it's just something they stream over the internet when they want to hear some music and i kind of find that to be sad but i guess things move on and us old guys can't keep everything the way we want it to and that's okay i'll keep amassing more music and enjoying playing it for anybody that'll listen especially those on the no agenda rock and roll pre-stream thursdays and sundays 9 a.m central noagendastream.com check it out if you have a chance and if really if you have artists that you dig and you've never heard them do live stuff there's a place do some searching it's kind of fun to find things you've never heard before and we are happy that you are at least hearing this random thoughts podcast and we hope you like what you've been hearing over the last 72 episodes well this is episode number 72 and i can't go through an episode 72 without at least giving a shout out to Carlton Fisk, the greatest catcher in Major League Baseball history, who wore number 72 here with the Chicago White Sox. I don't think there's any other famous baseball players with number 72. And we always dug Carlton Fisk, even though he got he had a bad rap at times here in Chicago, because he was one of these guys that if he was sitting down with his family, you know, in a restaurant having a meal and people bothered him for autographs, he would actually say no. I mean, I know that's absolutely crazy, but he was always very very nice to me very good guy always signed autographs for me and uh, has one of the best autographs in the business we talked about autographing way 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 back in the early random thoughts days and uh, carlton fist signature is actually on the uh, album art that i posted because it is one hell of a signature so go check out that episode if you are into all things autograph If you like what you've been hearing here on the Random Thoughts podcast, do me a favor and go to our website at randomthoughts.com, R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com and click one of the subscribe buttons, Apple, Android. You can even get it emailed to you so you don't miss a single minute of the fun. And if you really like what you're hearing, we do work on the value for value model. So go to that same website and click on the donate button. You can set up a one-time donation or a monthly donation, and we have our buddy Keith Von Dyke to thank on this episode as an executive producer being in on a monthly donation, and we greatly appreciate that more than I can put into words, and usually I like to talk a lot, but thank you, Keith. Thank you to everybody that's been listening to these shows. It's been a whole lot of fun putting them together. And I hope you're having as much fun listening to them as I am putting them out there. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so a few different ways. Darren at Random Thoughts, D-A-R-R-E-N at RandomThoughts.com. Or you can get us on Twitter at Random Podcast, R-A-N-D-U-M-B Podcast. Or my personal Twitter, Darren O'Neill, D-A-R-R-E-N-O-N-E-I-L-L. So until next time, I am Darren O'Neill. Thank you for listening.